This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Karen Chatton from Gardnerville, Nevada. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for March 8th, episode 1376. This episode is brought to you by the American Endurance Ride Conference. Good morning, Horse World. When your start time's on Saturday and your finish time's on Sunday... And it doesn't get much better than best conditioned. And completing the challenge is the challenge. You're an endurance rider. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. But don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining us on this Tuesday morning. And, of course, it's Endurance Day. We have Karen back with us. She's with us the second Tuesday of every month. And, Karen, I checked this morning in in October. You'll be three years on the show now. Wow. I know. Isn't that surprising? It's been a long time. It goes by so fast. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) And the older you get, the faster it goes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I always thought that was just a saying that my mom said, but uh, now that I'm at the age when my mom was saying that saying, I agree. Uh (laughs) You can relate. I can relate to that. But yeah, so uh, it's been almost three years since we've been doing these endurance episodes. Wow. Wow. And we never run out of stuff to talk about. Nope. That's true. You know, no. it, there's always more good stuff to talk about and always more to learn, right? Yes, yes. So we're going to be doing a little bit of that today, and Jennifer is going to tell us what's coming up on today's show. On today's AERC Endurance episode, we are all over the map, starting with a GPS tip from Karen, and then it's a quick stop in Spain for a chat with Andrew Steen about his role in the early development of the sport. And then Gina Hall in Nevada brings it all back to center with a chat about what what to finish to win to finish is to win say that three times fast really <laughs> means so stay tuned for the break though <laughs> well uh, now you got out for the first time right of the season for this yes for this ride season and i got in a little bit of trouble with my husband because, uh, what'd you do well you know every, before every trip you know there's a pre-checklist thing that we need to do, you know, check the tire pressures, check the oil, you know, check, make sure, you know, any maintenance that needs to be done on the track gets done. Well, I did everything except start the track. So I went out the day before I was supposed to leave at five in the morning the next day. And guess what? The truck was dead. Wouldn't start. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. So we had to charge up the battery, jumpstart it, drive it up to Les Schwab's where they checked it and said, yeah, you just need to recharge the batteries. So we plugged them in overnight and then everything was fine. But, you know, that's the kind of thing you don't really want to be doing, you know, at seven o'clock the night before you're planning Mm. on leaving. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's, uh, that's never Oops. a good time to have that. No, stuff no, lesson but, learned. But you know, it could have so. been seven o'clock the next morning. Yeah, that wouldn't have been a good thing. No, you, no, no. <laughs> You'd have been riding the horses to the event. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that wouldn't have been fun. So we actually we got down to the ride. We you went know to half the people listening and, now went, "Wow, she has a checklist." You know, because <laughs> what a surprise! Because <laughs> they don't do that either. You know, so. Uh, I know, I know. So it worked out. We got down there to the ride. I rode Bo 50 miles on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I had our junior rider that's been riding him. Uh, she came. And so on Sunday, she rode Bo 50 miles. So he ended up doing 100 miles in two days. Wow. And then I rode Chief and the 50 on Sunday with her. And this marked the start of Bo's 10th ride season and Chief's 15th ride season. Wow. That's incredible that you can – one, that uh, they, they have that kind of longevity. And two, you've been able to keep them healthy for that long. I know. I know. And next month, actually, is going to be two years since Bo had his colic surgery. So And look at him out there doing hundreds. Yes, in two days. Yeah. But yes, that's still, you know, that's a... Uh, you know, That's still a challenge for a uh, horse with a surgery, you know? <laughs> yes. He's doing great. He's thriving. They're doing, they're both doing really well and we're having a, a blast riding them and, and we've got rides coming up. So I'll have plenty to talk about in the next episode. <laughs> now you uh, apparently saw something uh, on the trail that nobody wants to see. Well, besides some of the front runners going the wrong way. <laughs> what? Tell us about well, that. Some of them. This was kind of, you, you know, you got to give them a little bit of slack because some of them rode the 100 mile and one day ride on Saturday and then they were out riding the 50 on Sunday. And uh, they're, you know, a good example of why maybe you shouldn't do that <laughs> when they were coming at us from the wrong direction because they had obviously uh, missed the trail and missed a turn and, and I don't know what they did, but they did a whole lot of miles on trail that wasn't marked. <laughs> and so they were coming back on the correct trail from the wrong direction, <laughs> trying to figure out what they had done wrong. They were probably still not quite fully conscious from riding a hundred miles the day before. <laughs> Oops. Oops. I know. So we, on our way back in on Sunday, on the last loop, passed a very irritated rattlesnake. Sound like that? <laughs> yes, it did. Just <laughs> like that. <laughs> I hear it again. Does it send shivers up your spine? <laughs> it did. You know, and, and of all the dumb things, as I kicked chief come on chief move get out of the way as if he needed any motivation right no he didn't he was getting out of the way all by himself he didn't need me to tell him now was he just was the snake just curled up there or was he being in this agitated was, moving state he was curled up and agitated and standing up oh yeah that's about when they're ready to go yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were more than ready he's really to get pissed that all these the riders way. kept going by his house Probably, yes. 
So normally at that ride, which is usually, you know, in February every year, I, I think this is probably the first time in many, many, many years of going to that ride that I've encountered a snake like that on the trail. But it was 80 degrees that day say, and yeah, it's it been, been unseasonably, you know, warm, especially for us coming from a colder climate. We'll have to have a snake expert on someday. I, You know, is it, do they start poking their heads out about 50 degrees or? Um. I've had friends tell me it's usually around 75 that they start moving a oh, little okay. more. Otherwise, you know, when it's cool. I know when we've taken our dogs to the snake avoidance training that they keep the rattlesnakes in coolers. And so they keep them a little cooler. So like then they're not groggy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're not as quick to move and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and I know that training has paid off because it causes my dogs to avoid any snake and any stick that looks like a snake, <laughs> they'll give it a white birth. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Yesterday, we, uh, we uh, Leslie from Horse Nation did a segment for us on the 1912 Olympics. And in the 1912 Olympics, the eventers had, uh, they really went over five days. And their first day was a 30-mile endurance ride. Wow. So they did that first, and then they came back and they did their steeplechase, and then they did uh -huh. their endurance, or they did their cross-country ride, and then they did their show jumping, and then the last day they did their dressage. Wow. But all of that started out with a 30-mile endurance ride. Oh, so neat. Can you imagine the uh, fitness of those horses to be able to do all that stuff? No kidding. And then on the final day, do a dressage test. Uh-huh. Wow. And the riders, too. Yes, and the riders, too. Now, back in those days, it was all military, but, uh, you know, it was basically a military. They called it a uh -huh. military uh, something. It wasn't called eventing back then. Wow. So, anyway, I thought it was interesting that they started with that long a ride. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think you can make cool. your, to Bo, do you think you Bo could do that, you know, that 30 miles and then do the stadium and all that stuff and then do a, a perfect dressage test? You know, any horse that can do the Rose Parade can do anything. Oh, listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not every horse can All right. Can I want to see Bo's know, scores on his first dressage test, all right? <laughs> I want to see his scores on his first dressage <laughs> test. Now, um, you also wanted to talk about some dog stuff. Yes, I've I've been taking our new newest dog that we've had um, over a year now to um, back to obedience class, which is kind of a lot of fun. It's a good way to keep him socialized and reinforce, you know, the training that he's already had. And and so one of the things you know, I needed to do for the school was to bring his, you know, paperwork to show he's vaccinated and that sort of thing. So I was going through and looking and, and I realized he wasn't microchipped. And so they were doing a clinic locally on the weekend where I could bring, bring him in. And for $15, he got microchipped. Uh, this is Higgy. And, and then I looked and I realized that, uh, and once you have your dog microchipped, you need to go online and register it in your name. Otherwise, you know, it's not really doing any good. And and what's kind of interesting is some of the, the microchip companies, they want to charge you like $20 a year to keep your microchip registered. But once I did some online research, I found out that you don't have to do that. You can go to um, the website, which is called found.org and register for free and it's for life of that pet 
And so you put in your, you can put in your microchip number and do a search and find out if you already do have a dog or, you know, any animal that's microchipped. If, if it, if you do the search and it comes up, then you're good. But if it doesn't, then you need to register that way. If your pet gets lost and they do a search, they can find you and get that pet back to you. I had just read, um, on one of the dog, um, list I'm on for cattle dogs, a story about a a lady that got her dog back three years after it was missing because it had a microchip. Wow. Isn't that cool? Jennifer, did you uh, register yet our horses? We had them microchipped about a year ago and she keeps forgetting to put it online. So you got to do that. Uh, Yes. It's just go to found.org and it brings you to the microchip registry. It doesn't do any and, good to have them, you know, microchipped and then forget to register them. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't do much. So we got to get that done. Uh, and then Valerie Ashker, what's she up to? Well, she is going to be going on a huge trek across the United States, which is going to take four to five months. Uh, she's a distance rider? She's not. She is an inventor and her daughter, Lainey, which you... I know oh. you guys know because yes. you've interviewed Lainey's her been on, on the, the show. show many times. Is this so, Lainey's mom? Valerie, yes, it's Lainey's mom. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, and her uh, thoroughbred Primitivo will be riding from uh, Northern California all the way across the country and will end in Virginia. Wow. So now, is there a reason? <laughs> yes, Sometimes they're is. raising money and, or doing something, you know? Yes, she wants to bring awareness to the second careers of off-the-track thoroughbreds. And I'm going to have her on the show next month to tell us about it and, and uh, what she start? journey entails. Uh, in May. In May. Well, then we need to get her on your show every month and, and see where she's at. Right. Yes, it's going to be quite the adventure she's going to have. It's it's and she's on her way right now to go get a trailer for the trip. So that's why I couldn't get her on this morning because she's driving. Um, but we'll get a chance to catch up with her next month. And We've followed her. in the past a couple people who have done this. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things is she just doing the one horse. Um. Yes, she's planning on just riding the one horse, but she is going to have two with her. That, Good. Uh, yeah, because yeah. because that's one of the things that's happened is that people who have set out hoping to do it on one horse always end up needing a backup. Because at some point, that horse is uh-huh. going to come up lame with a bruise or something. And or scratches yeah, just, or yeah. something. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, she had, I, we followed her pretty closely. We had her on every couple of weeks. And, you know, we kind of followed her all the way across the country. She was on that trip with two from Washington State to, I think she ended up in New Jersey at the ocean. And uh, she had two other horses, one as a pack horse and then the other as a spare. And she would switch off riding the two horses. So she would Mm be, you know, there she would be. And we went and met her in Ohio. Oh, cool. And we found her alongside the road in Ohio. <laughs> there she was. <laughs> Took her out to dinner and stuff, and she stayed and uh, got the horses some food that night. But, yeah, that was a, she had some harrowing experiences and some interesting ones on that trip, mm-hmm. uh, as you would imagine, you know. Yes, yes. You can have a lot of adventure, tra- you know, and you learn so much about your horses and yourself and you know, your relationships and, and all sorts of things when you do those kinds of um, epic journeys. 
She met some really nice people along the way that took her in because she really didn't Mm -hmm. have that planned at all. She just Uh was riding, you know, where whatever happened happened. And uh, she did camp some nights, but uh, a lot of nights she ended up in people's homes and the horses in a paddock, you know. So it worked out uh, that way. And Uh she ended up with a lot of free food and things along the way. That works good. You know, it'll be tough for Valerie at, at first because if she's heading off directly across the state of Nevada, you, you know, there's, it's not as developed as some of the other states when she gets farther into the no, Midwest. No, she's going to be camping in the desert a couple of those nights. <laughs> right. Now, is she having a support crew following her or is she on yes. her own? Yes. Yeah, she's going to have a, a support crew. Oh, uh, okay. Because yeah. this yeah. lady did it by herself. Just set off with oh, the horses okay. and that was it. No support crew, no backup, nothing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was, uh, that's, that's when you're through truly throwing it out there and going, okay, here we go. Yep. Yeah. yep. Well, that's cool. That's very cool. I'm excited to hear from her. as She makes her way across. Yeah. Well, let's talk your endurance tip of the month. Uh, and it is about something that if you're an endurance rider, you really need to figure out, but a lot of trail riders are using them now too. Right. Uh, GPS, which is a great tool for us to use. It can really help teach us how to ride a little more strategically and effectively with our horses. You know, heart rate monitors are also an awesome tool and they have several models now that combine the two together. I have found, you know, personally that the GPS has been far more helpful for me because it's enabled me to learn how to rate my horses better. You know, I learned how to gauge, you know, my rate of speed, my average moving speed. You know, if you pay attention to it, you can learn, you know, gosh, you know, I I might be moving at six or seven or eight miles an hour, but then that 10 or 15 minutes, I just fiddled around or I'm late getting out of my vet check hold, kind of blows my time out the window. So, you know, if you're planning on doing a hundred or a ride like Tevis, you need to really be paying attention to your overall moving speed. And so a GPS can be really beneficial in that regard. Um, On the last ride that I just did, I had my Indomondo app turned on. And normally I turn off the sound on it because it irritates me, you know, like on a training ride, because every mile it tells you that you've gone another mile. So when you're, you know, riding a 50, that could be depressing. (laughs) Well, it can be depressing, but it gets annoying after, you know, 40, 40 by 50. Jeez, I've only been 10 miles. I'm tired already. (laughs) I know. But one of the, the things that I thought was really cool, and this would be really helpful for a new rider, is it was telling me how many minutes it took me to do that mile. And so it helped me kind of gauge, okay, in this kind of footing or this kind of terrain, it's taking me six or eight or, you know, so many minutes to do a mile. And then that way I was able to calculate, you know, an idea of, well, when I should be getting back to camp for lunch or or when I think I'm going to be finished, which is helpful if there's somebody there, you know, like I had my junior and her dad was there and he just kind of wanted an idea of, you know, when we might be coming back in for the checks and to finish. So he would make sure he was there. And, and so, 
you know, it was really kind of helpful and it, it helps you learn to just be a little bit more efficient on how you're moving and more aware of when you're possibly wasting time and when you can or can't make time because you learn on the different kinds of footing and the the steepness of the train, you know, how fast you you can anticipate that you're going to be able to go. And once you, you know, watch, you know, your GPS or your app or, or whatever you're using, often enough, you can, it really helps you learn to just be a better rider and, and become better at managing your horse and, and how you're moving out down the trail. Now, when you go to these rides, you've done them so many times. There's lots of rides you've done tons of times. Mm-hmm. So when you go in, you know you know what the mm-hmm. terrain, you know what's going on. Do you go in with a goal that I want to average six miles an hour on this one? I want to average eight miles an hour on this one. Do you go in with that kind of plan or is it more loosey-goosey than that? Sometimes you can. You know, that's kind of a more important thing like when you're starting a new horse or – you know, or maybe you're bringing one back or yourself back after an injury, perhaps, and you know what you need to average just to make it through in time. And then it's also helpful when you want to step up your game and and get through the rides a little bit faster, maybe place a little bit better. I have found it's really important when I'm doing a ride like Tevis that I go out, you know, in the year or the months leading up to it, and I compete at other rides that might be similar terrain, that I can keep up the moving average that I know I'm going to need to keep to get through yeah, Tevis. you don't come to Florida to practice for Tevis. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it can be a really helpful thing. And, you know, they've gotten more and more affordable. How long uh, and, do the batteries last in the GPSs? Um, you know, it depends. There's different models that can be that have rechargeable batteries. And then I like the handheld version I've got that just takes two double A's. And they will typically get me through a 50. If I'm doing a hundred, then I plan on having extra batteries at like the midway point and change them out. Yeah, that's a nice thing because with the other GPSs with the rechargeable, you can't change the batteries. So Right, you got to remember. Guess you know, if you had a phone, plug I mean, it in if you had a phone, you could you could bring extra batteries. If you have a phone where you can change batteries, like mine, but right or a way to and but they eat batteries external. faster than your GPS is going to. I mean, when you use a GPS on the phone, you're you're in an hour, your phone's dead. Well, it can't. Yeah, exactly. They're getting better and better all the time. You know, like my phone, um, it's the new active model, and it's got a much larger battery than my previous phones had and it has no problem doing uh, you know it uh, being on all day for 10 hours and recording everything and running that app with the location um turned on but you know for some people their phones will run down and die if they're do if you, they've got you turn everything else else off then you close all the other apps make sure it's all shut down yes yeah. i yes i usually try to and uh you know, the the thing I learned, as we, you probably remember when I lost my phone on a ride last year, yes. um, and then went back two weeks later and found, found it. Found it. Well, I had put it in airplane mode so that it wouldn't drain the battery. Well, you can't locate it then because it's right. there's it's no, airplane everything's mode. turned off. It's in airplane <laughs> mode. It's not sending out or receiving a signal. So, uh, you know, that's the catch 22 with that is, um, 
you know, if you set it so that it it's not draining the battery, then it's also not able to be located if you do happen to lose it. <laughs> and it, what brand do you use of GPS? A Garmin. You use a Garmin. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's your handheld one? Yes. Okay. Yes. And right. I have it on a neck strap and I normally ride with sun shirts that have pockets so that I just keep it in my shirt pocket so it's easy to just pull in and out you know, to look at and to, to get to easily, you know, some of them, if you stick them down in your saddle pack, they're not, you know, going to receive as good of a signal some of the time. Does that one allow you to set the course ahead of time and do waypoints and stuff? Yes, you can do all of that with it. Mm -hmm. Cool. And do you use that feature? Sometimes, you know, when we did the cross country rides on the Pony Express trail, that's how we followed the trail was by downloading the tracks or waypoints onto the GPS. And then we needed to look at it often enough to make sure we were still on the course. There's another woman uh, that I read about yesterday that is heading out and she's doing a, uh, I'm trying to find it here. She's doing, and this is for charity. And this is a tough ride, and you, everybody will recognize this ride because it was the beginning of the movie with the Mustangs. Uh, she is riding the Arizona Trail. Oh, okay. Which is the 800 miles. Uh-huh. Um, and she's going to do it straight through um, and, and expecting to take a couple of weeks. But I think she's going to have support people, too, because if I remember right from the movie, uh, uh-huh. that was all desert. You know, that's the part where they had to pull the thorns out of the horse's butt uh, in in the Unbranded movie. Did you see that oh, movie? Uh-huh. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. that's a, yeah. that was the first part of that adventure. So she's going to be riding that, and that's for charity as well. So there's a lot more people doing the uh, doing the distance riding like that, uh, mm-hmm. and giving it a try. I know you've done it with the you know many times, but. Uh, uh-huh. Very cool. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we head over to Kristen at Distance Depot to hear what she has to talk about. And then we're going to go right into an interview. Tell us about the interview after that. Okay. Uh, Andrew Steen, he is now living in Spain, but he originally is from Utah and then Nevada. He completed the Tevis in 1962. At the time, he was the youngest person to do it at 12 years old. He's one of the founding members of the NASTAR Club and helped get the Virginia City 100 started. He's also the author of many beautiful books on the Arabian breed. Very good. And that'll be right after we hear from Distance Depot. Well, good morning, Kristen. How are you doing today? Just great, Karen. How are you? Good. So let's just uh, review real quick. How was the AARC convention? Oh, it was great to be out there. We hadn't been out there um, in a couple years, and we I, I got to meet you and so many other people. It was, it was a terrific, um, successful convention, it looked like, for everyone. There were a lot of people there. Good, and all the new products were popular, I take it? <laughs> yes, yes. The, the new helmets, for instance, went, went um, so quickly. We, <laughs> The girls in our aisle, we had a fun group, and they, they said, you know, that was like a shark fest. I mean, they, everybody just grabbed them up. We only had five for display, and they bought them so quickly. In fact, when you came over, you wanted to see them, and they were already gone. I know. Well, I'll just have to look for them on the trail. <laughs> yep, there you go. <laughs> That's my only chance to see them in real life. Right. 
Okay, well, today we're going to talk about the safety vests that you carry. Okay, um, we do. We have three different styles at the moment. We will be introducing a new one shortly by Tipperary, but the three that we have now, um, two of them are an air vest. Um, maybe some of your listeners have seen or heard of the HITS, I think they call them air vests. This is very similar. This product is made in France, um, and they're called Helite soft shell safety vests, but they have an air bladder inside that inflates um, when you fall off because you clip into the saddle with a, a strap that's connected to an air canister, and should you fall off, um, similar to some of the ATVs and water sports um, things, you know, when you fall off, it, it pulls the motor or stops the engine. In this case, it inflates the airbag um, and keeps you safe when you fall. And I'm going to tell you, we have inflated these on ourselves, um, and the protection is is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, it covers the rib cage front and back, and of course, the all all important area around your neck, and it really holds you snugly, um, and then slowly, very slowly, deflates so that it's not a you know, it just goes down quite slowly so that um, you can recover, <laughs> and um, doesn't keep you locked up, but it sure is snug when it when it inflates for for the you know really superior protection. Right. I've seen an, a demonstration of one and it, like you said, it just instantly, it's just like a car airbag. It instantly yeah. inflates and um, it does offer excellent protection and they certainly cost a lot less than even one emergency room visit. Yes, they are expensive, but when you take into consideration, you know, we've had people with punctured lungs that have come and told us I, I'm wearing a vest because I punctured a lung last time I fell and so, I mean, yeah, when you take into consideration that, it certainly is a lot less expensive than something like that. Right. Never mind the expense, but just yeah. going through the rest of your life, surviving those kinds of injuries is not a lot of fun. If anyone that's ever broken a clavicle or had any kind of injuries like that, you would gladly shell out the money for one of these safety vests mm-hmm. and, and, and have uh, spent the money that way instead. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> The other type of vest, oh, that that air vest does come in a a mesh um, and canvas style, more similar to if if anyone has ever seen one of those rodeo vests. It's a little lighter. Um, The the soft shell vests are are pretty, you know, zipped all the way up, where the the canvas mesh vest really is more open. A little less coverage, I think, but um, still pretty pretty superior um, coverage. the, the other vest that we do carry is the Tipperary Venter Pro. Um, we carry it in navy, and it is um, ASTM certified, which means it meets the standards for safety in the equine industry. Not all safety vests um, meet that certification, but this particular one does um, and has, you know, very good coverage. It, it actually has small blocks, if you will, of foam, um, you know, all stitched together, and so it's a different type of protection, and you don't have to clip in and out of the saddle. Um, and it's pretty airy, although, you know, when you're wearing that sort of thing, you are covered up somewhat. Um, but it's it's a, a very nice uh, vest for the money as well. And it looks like the safe, the air safety vests come in black, they, and the temporary comes in navy. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And and the soft shell vest I have, those are actually kind of neat because you can undo the bladder that inflates and put them in the washing machine. And they can actually be switched out. You can buy a jacket shell for cooler weather as well. Um, mm. Of course, we have it in the sleeves. And, and I do offer some sizes in navy and red as well as the black and gray. Okay. And do you also sell replacement canisters? We sure do, yes. Oh, good. If, if as soon as that, um, you know, if you have a fall and that implodes, then you need to replace your canister right away and throw out the old one so it's never mistaken for one that might still be good. Right. If somebody was interested in ordering, how would they get in touch with you? Well, you can visit us at www.thedistancedepot.com. Call us toll-free at 866-863-2349. And you can also request one of our new 2016 catalogs, and we would mail one out to you. Well, great. Thank you for joining us um, and telling us about these safety vests, Kristen. Thank you, Karen. Great to be here. Well, thank you for joining us on the show, Andrew. It's nice to meet you virtually. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you first got started in horses and endurance riding. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to, uh, to this interview. Uh, I, my father bought me my first horse when I was six years old, a $25 strawberry roan great horse, uh, that uh, I used to ride all over the Utah Utah mountains around Moab and, and around the desert. Uh, and in 1960, I, I went to a movie called uh, The Big Fisherman, a biblical movie about John the Baptist, and saw my first Arabian horses on the screen and had to, had to own one. So I bought, I immediately... Uh, uh, tracked down the biggest breeder in the state of Utah and the Whitmore Arabian Horse Farm in Salt Lake City and uh, saw a beautiful four-month-old colt, which I had to, had to own, but I didn't have the money to buy him. So uh, I uh, finally uh, convinced my father to, to uh, make the payment, $500. Wow. He became... Well, it, it, most of the purebreds they had there's half a rib. Most of the purebreds they had uh, were selling colts for selling for $1,500. And I had about $280 in the bank. So I sold my dad back some cow, two cats that he had given me and uh, made the made the payments. And, and uh, later, White Eagle became... Uh, the first uh, U.S. national champion half-Arabian gilding in 1964. I never rode him on an endurance ride, but he uh, was quite a successful horse mm-hmm. uh, for his next owner, uh, Barbara Sarah White, who won her first uh, four of her first four buckles, uh, Tevis Cup buckles on him, and uh, wow, he, he uh, worked out to be quite a good horse. But I became involved in endurance riding. Uh, more or less by chance, uh, we moved from Utah to Nevada in 1960, 61, excuse me, and uh, my father was looking for properties, uh, ranches to invest in, and we went to the uh, well-known eye doctor uh, named S.T. Clark, who had two ranches for sale, one in Washoe Valley and one in Dayton, Nevada, and we drove out with the real estate broker one afternoon the Dayton Ranch, and there was a man, a short man, named, named George Blair, who mm-hmm. uh, 
was wearing a Tevis Cup belt buckle, and I took one look at the the uh, gold and silver Pony Express rider and, and thought I had to have one. So uh, subsequently, my father bought both ranches and kept Booker on as the manager. And the following uh, following summer, I moved to the moved to, to a small trailer house in on the ranch in uh, in Dayton and and. Uh, Bought a $200 Mustang and Paiute, who had been captured uh, wild in the in the Nevada desert mm-hmm. near Silver Springs, Nevada, and uh, started riding five times a week, 20 to 25 miles a day, uh, 25 miles a, 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 week, a day each five days a week, uh, to Silver Springs or to Fort Churchill or up into Virginia City and, and, and the mountains, the volcanic mountains behind uh, Virginia City. Mm-hmm. And uh, later, later rode him on the tennis cup and became the youngest youngest rider up until that time, and for about a decade thereafter to ever finish the ride and, and, and win a buckle. So, and how how old were you to, when you did that? I was twelve years old. Uh, 13, oh, okay. I was I was just under thirteen years old when I when I rode the tennis cup ride. Okay, and tell us a little the more about your day. about your horse. I understand he was in a movie. Paiute, Paiute has the dubious distinction of being a star in the famous John Ford uh, classic Western movie, The Misfits, which starred uh, Clark Gable, uh, Marilyn Monroe, and uh, Montgomery Cliff. It was the last movie of, of both uh, Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe that actually was finished. Mm-hmm. They filmed that movie not on our ranch, but on an adjacent ranch, right right above our ranch on the on the on the uh, the Carson River, but the horses used in that film were all owned by George Blair, our ranch manager. And Paiute was the star of the movie. Uh, maybe people who have seen the movie might recall the the desert flat scene when when they're roping the horses, and Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe begs Clark Gable to let the horse free. Uh, that that was Paiute. Uh, he just happened to be at the ranch, and that's the horse that I. I, I, I ended up riding in the Tavis Cup. I had three of the horses in, in training, but two of them, they couldn't stand up on the, under, the, uh, under the training. And what color was he? He was a very, very dark brown. I, w- I wouldn't say black, but he was close to black. Okay. Not a very attractive horse. A big head and, and mutton, mutton withers, uh, apple, apple rump. Uh-huh. Very, very choppy, choppy gait, which was just like riding a, a jackhammer. <laughs> but he had a lot. Of, he had a lot of. Uh, he was a stubborn horse. He had a lot of a lot of true grit and, and uh, uh, loved to get back to the barn to, to have his hay ration. But, well, uh, I'm gonna he, have he to had, just, rewatch that movie now just so I can see your horse. <laughs> okay. I haven't seen it in years, but it's good news. Great movie. Right, right, and it's so cool that it was filmed in our area here. You know where I'm from. So tell us about meeting. Nick Mansfield. Well, that that happened the same summer. Uh, I used to ride out every day, it, almost every day, uh, on twenty five mile rides, leading horses behind me for, for Blair and his wife. And uh, one time, I was I was riding up into the mountains near near Virginia City, about ten miles to the to the east, on an old uh, mining road. And I happened to see two riders approach, and there was Nick and Pinky Mansfield coming from the opposite direction, coming from their ranch in Wadsworth, Nevada, which is about 
36 or 38 miles away, and uh, we happened to meet, and by coincidence, we were both training for the same ride. Of course, Nick was an absolute legend there. I'd heard about him long before, and even even at that time, the, the Tennis Cup ride was only seven years old at that time, and it was not very well known, not nearly as popular mm-hmm. as, as it is today. But Nick was like a local legend because he had won the first Tevis Cup ride in 1955, if my memory serves correctly, uh, on on his uh, his horse. And uh, I later rode the, rode the Tevis Cup with him uh, on, on a number of occasions. I only finished one time, my first time, because the Nick tried to win the, the uh-huh. ride and was disqualified for various reasons at, at different stops, but I was I was disqualified twice in first place and one time in second place. So I hold the distinction of having the most uh, most uh, unsuccessful attempts after I won my first buckle. Well, and when you were going on your conditioning rides, um, how did you manage to do that? Did you do it, I mean, were you working and then conditioned after work well, during the week? I was 12 years old. I my oh, you, that's right. And, you were still just a kid, weren't you? Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, I just my my parents and brothers went on vacation to the to see the American Civil War battlefields that summer, and I stayed in Nevada and and moved moved to uh, the trailer house in, on the Dayton Ranch. And every morning I would get up and and saddle up and, and ride up, uh, usually to. Silver Springs or to Fort Churchill or wherever uh, the, the Sutro Tunnel. And uh, usually leading two other horses with me, uh, back and forth in the hot desert sun, usually alone. Sometimes Blair and his wife uh, uh, rode along. Uh-huh, that's but, some rough country in there. A lot of rocks. <laughs> it, it's uh, it, it can be, but it, it yeah. was monotonous. But I wanted the buckle so so very badly that that uh, kept me going, and and I'm I'm still proud to this day that I that I did that. Right. Okay. Well, tell us about the very beginnings of the NASTAR Club and the Virginia City Hundred Ride. Well, in 1968, I, 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 1968, I, I took my my endurance mare with quite a famous mare uh, named Good Trip that I bought from Doctor Barslow. Uh, I took took her to uh, to keep her at Nick Mansfield's ranch in Wadsworth because I wanted to have someone. Uh, some company on on, on 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 the trail, and also because it, it motivated me to actually get back in the saddle. So I, I kept my mare at Nick's ranch for about three months, uh, and each each four or five times each week, I would I would drive out to Wadsworth, and with Nick and I would saddle up usually around nine o'clock after he had finished working in his bar and service station, and we'd ride to Virginia City or or. Uh, Parts unknown, and usually on, on the on the uh, on the south bank of, of the Truckee River, and uh, Nick and I both lamented the fact that there were, there was only one one hundred mile endurance ride at that time that, that was uh, you know it was going. So uh, we often talked about starting our own ride, and uh, other people like Cliff Lewis and, and Louis Henderson and uh, Dean Hubbard. We're also enthusiastic uh, riders, and we used to bump into into each other at the Ponderosa Hotel in Reno, at the coffee shop. And one afternoon, Louis Henderson called me up and said, "We're having a meeting. Uh, we're going to 
meet you and Nick at the, at the 102 this evening at 10 o'clock. And I said, well, okay, fine. And the next thing you know, Nick and Rui showed up at Nick's Cafe, and we talked for about 45 minutes and and decided to ha have a meeting to uh, see if any, we could get other Nevada writers interested in participating. So the next, I guess, about four or five days later, we had, had a meeting on a Saturday night, and about 10 riders showed up, 10 horsemen, local horsemen, which wasn't a very large uh, out, out turning, but we decided to go ahead with it anyway and uh, made the announcement and, and marked the trail. Uh, Nick and I marked the trail between his ranch in Virginia City and Cliff, mm -hmm. and Cliff Lewis, Louis Henderson, and Dean Hubbard marked the trail. And we... Uh, Put out the announcements, and I, I think we had a pretty good turnout. I can't remember exactly how many writers showed up, but uh, well, about twenty or twenty twenty-four mm -hmm. showed up. They named me as the uh, as the judge, and uh, I, I presented the first uh, silver Sterling show, Silver Trophy, which uh, Cliff Lewis won. And I guess the rest is history. And how many times did you write it? I never did ride the, the oh, okay. Virginia City ride. My my brother rode my horse Good Trip on the ride, and and several other horses that, that I owned uh, participated. Uh, Shia, who I had traded with uh, uh, Neil Hutton's parents, uh, uh, participated in the ride, and I had a wheat as the second uh, uh, son, a gilding uh, that also finished the first Nevada All State Trail ride. But I never actually rode the ride itself. Okay, but you marked it. That counts for something. <laughs> you well, got to mark it and started the ride with. with That's Nick right. And and well, tell us a little about your experience with some of these other endurance riders, like Donna and Ed Johnson. Well, I, I had the pleasure of knowing knowing most of the early, uh, mm -hmm. I guess, legendary, famous endurance riders. Uh, I met. Uh, I met Will Orobi actually uh, two weeks before the uh, Tevis Cup ride, the 1962 Tevis Cup ride on the trail. He was out with a group of uh, five or six uh, uh, Auburn riders from Auburn, California. Mm -hmm. And Drusilla uh, Barna, who had won the ride. Uh, I went to high school with Neil Hutton, who uh, was two years older than me, Worcester High School in Reno, Nevada. He was the best writer I've ever known. He was, he was absolutely, he would, he would be off his horse down the, down the mountain, back on his horse and, gall and trotting down the trail before I was even off my horse. He was a mm -hmm. phenomenal writer. Uh, the youngest, youngest person I believe to ever win the Tennis Cup at age 17. Uh, uh I, I, uh, I knew, I knew, as I say, I knew, I knew Smokey. I knew, I knew, uh, Drusilla Barner well. I knew I knew uh, Wendell Roby, uh, Bud Darty, Ed Johnson, Paige Harper, all of the greats. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what kind of gear were you riding in back then when you were doing this? I, I bought a bought a Western saddle with a, one of the I guess one of the first fiberglass uh, frame saddles that weighed thirteen pounds. Had to weight my saddle uh, because I wasn't heavy enough in those days to uh, to make the minimum weight. But uh, uh, just the very basic equipment, uh, uh, 
typical Western dip bridle, uh, 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 halter, which I which I, I kept on the horse all the ride, and and this this cheap thirteen uh-huh. pound saddle. Oh, okay, and cowboy boots, I presume, and jeans. No, I I, I used used tennis shoes in those okay. days, blue jeans. Okay. Nothing fancy, you know. The, the rides now are, are are really quite sophisticated. In those days, it was really very very basic uh, uh, horsemen who wanted to go for a long distance ride and hopefully win a trophy in a buckle. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the veterinary, uh, the vet stops. Uh, no no great crowds. No no great applause when you cross the finish line. Uh, just just uh, riders determined to see if they could do it or not. Uh huh. Have you continued riding throughout your life? Not throughout my life, but I, I showed, I showed, uh, not professionally, semi-professionally, in, in throughout America uh, for ten years. I, I raced in one the first uh, sagebrush Arabian horse race that Hazel Lucas ever sponsored uh, in Allen, Nevada. I came in second. Uh, uh, on a on a long back seven mm-hmm. eight uh, red Arabian gilding. Well, let's um, mention your books. I see you are uh, uh, an author of several books on the Arabian horses. Tell us about those. Well, I, I became I, I actually I became obsessed with the Arabian horse on the on the 1962 Tennis Cup ride because John M. Rogers. And his son John Jr. were trying to win their first buckles, and for 92 miles the trail, I rode alongside one of the most uh, magnificent horses I've ever ever known, and certainly my the favorite horse that I've ever owned, the electrician who, to this day, holds the world record for the two and five eighths mile uh, flat track uh, Arabian race record throughout mm-hmm. the world, five minutes eleven and one fifth seconds. Uh, he was on 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 the uh, on the tennis cup ride, and uh, the, after the ride finished, my father said, "Well, I use a beautiful, a nice, tough little Mustang, but I think you need to upgrade. Do you have your eyes on another horse?" And I knew instantly that, that he was the only horse I wanted. Uh-huh. So my father purchased the electrician from John Rogers, and thereafter, uh, I uh, became obsessed with the Arabian horse, and we we started. Uh, I started buying mares and, and Polish mares, imported mares and stallions, and later made the first importation of Spanish raving horses to America since 1934. Okay. But in the meantime, throughout my life, I've been obsessed with the history and the and the and mm-hmm. the culture of the Arabian horse and the Bedouin uh, tribes of, of Arabia and horse breeding tribes. And consequently, I've written uh, now I have 15 books published. Uh, on the Arabian horse and its history. Wow. Well, what can you tell me uh, real quick about the Spanish Arabian horse? Well, the Spanish Arabian horses uh, were made famous by Edna Draper, who imported five, four mares and one stallion from Spain in 1934. And uh, they had phenomenal success and phenomenal, uh, they were phenomenal producers of champions. And when I became involved in, in Arabian horses following the Tennis Cup ride, uh, everyone in the world assumed that the Spanish Arabian horse had ceased to, to exist because of the Spanish Civil War. There was no news and mm-hmm. certainly no internet or 
modern modern communications. And it happened that a, a young uh, American uh, military man was stationed in Germany named Jim Hopkins went to Spain and, and, and rediscovered that Spain was still breeding the raving horses following the Spanish Civil War. He wrote an article in the November uh, 1962 Arabian Horse World, which uh, opened everyone's eyes, and I uh, immediately uh, uh, saw the potential of, of, of those bloodlines, which had made Edna Draper so famous and her horses so famous. So in December of 1963, uh, my, my family went to Spain with our horse trainer, uh, William J. Smith, and uh, we uh, the registry was not open uh, to Spanish Arabian horses at that time because of a, of a uh, misunderstanding about their purity due mm-hmm. to the Spanish Civil War. But after three years of very bitter fighting with the American uh, Arabian Horse Club Registry of America, its president and, and the vested interest did not want any side competition coming in because they knew how good the horses were, the Spanish horses were, they finally succeeded in, in, in opening the registry and imported 28 uh, mares uh, or fillies and uh, two uh, actually three uh, uh, colts that, uh, one in utero the one, one at five days old and two in utero and uh, one of those stallions became world famous and, and is probably one of the regarded as one of the 20 most famous and influential Arabian stallions of all time, oh. Mark the Washoe. Uh-huh. Yes, that horse, um, I believe, is, um, I mean, the horse I'm riding now, Granite Chief, is a descendant of that horse. I think it was his grandson. Well, last, sure. last year's Tevis Cup winner was when, a, was a grand granddaughter of Barak. Exactly, I know. That, that's why I asked because I'm I'm interested because I know there's not a lot of Spanish Arabians in this country. Well, uh, Barak is more famous for producing uh, champions in the show ring than he is for endurance horses. Uh-huh. Uh our our ranch, my ranch, was was more famous for its Arabian race horses. Uh, eight uh-huh. of the forty three stallions and mares that are admitted into the Arabian Horse uh, Trust Race Horse Hall of Fame descend from my stallion Mohaz, a Polish imported okay. stallion. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Well, we're just about out of time, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, there you go. There, uh, he was an interesting guy and a soothing voice. My goodness, I know, I know. I love all that history. It's I know great. And the history. Yeah, I do. I love that stuff too. Uh, and he certainly has lived through a lot of it. Are we ready for our next guest? I th- think we are. Are we, Jennifer? Yes, Susan is ready. Great. We have Dr. Susan Garlinghouse from the AERC to give us a little little bit of an update on what's going on with AERC and some news on some rescue horses. Welcome to the show, Susan. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Karen. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Good. We're good. 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 Well, let's start out. Tell us about these rescue horses. Oh well, this is uh, this has been an adventure. Um, this was, uh, you know, it's after not the uh, fifty-two in Ohio, right? 
Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. no. Okay, this right, is um, this was a, kind of a, a strange tale, and I'm, I'm I've kind of gotten it second and third hand uh, that there were uh, there was apparently a gentleman apparently in the Arkansas or Missouri area that uh, had a large tract of land, and he just liked uh, Missouri fox trotters, and he had a, a whole group big group of them uh, that were just breeding freely and just wandering around the property. They might as well have been uh, BLM Mustangs. And uh, as, uh, you know, unhandled, untrained, you know, just living wild. And uh, as happens, then eventually the gentleman died and his uh, his heirs wanted to, to clear the, the, the property. And so all of these, these babies and, uh, and mares and horses were just rounded up and uh, went to the, the sale barn, and as tends to, to happen, um, virtually all of them were bought by the uh, the, the buyers for the uh, the kill pens and going to the slaughterhouses in in Mexico. Um, and there were uh, quite a, a, a group of them, uh, about twenty, thirty babies or so, uh, weanlings to the yearlings, that um, they are in uh, the the kill pen, uh, the the what they call the kill pens uh, in. Um, uh, Bastrop, Louisiana. So, um, a a friend of mine who was also an endurance rider, they had uh, uh, adopted or you know what they call bailed out, uh, bought them for a very small amount of money, uh, a couple of babies that they um, were trying to to get out before they they were shipped to to slaughter, and they're actually very nice little babies. Unfortunately, they they've had a really really rough road. Um, some of them did did not survive, but quite a few of them have. Uh, so, you know, because I have apparently not a brain in my head, uh, I went on to the, the Facebook page just out of curiosity, and sure enough, uh, bought myself a, a, a weanling baby based on a 12-second video. <laughs> of course. But, that's what we all do. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah, because that's what you do, you know. Uh, so he's, uh, uh, I, I contacted a, a local rescue group, uh, Spirit Run uh, Equine Rescue, and they're, they're actually doing a terrific job of, uh, they went and they picked him up for me, and they're taking care of him and kind of uh, getting him past the delicate stage. And when he's just a, a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger, then, then he'll come out here with me to, to California. And a couple of others are, uh, they've also been, uh, been adopted out. Uh, and there's, apparently there's some left. And I, I believe that there's a, a, a rescue, uh, Save Our Strays, that, um, it's a 501c and they're trying to, to raise some, some funds to, uh, to be able to rescue the, the remaining group of babies and then, uh, adopt them out. So it's, it's just kind of been a strange situation. Um, and it's, and a very, very sad one. Uh, that uh, you know, all, apparently all of the uh, the adult horses in this this group were um, apparently uh, have already been shipped to to Mexico, but there's quite a few babies that were left over, and uh, so I figure, well, you know, if uh, he he seems to be doing well now, um, I uh, saw this little video of this uh, well built little uh, little weanling, and uh, uh, so it's just kind of like, well, okay, what the heck, here we go. But uh, he'll uh, if he's forward and if he he likes to move on down the trail, then he'll be the distance horse, uh, like my other gated horses. And if he just kind of wants to uh, poke around, then he can be my husband's trail horse. But fox trotters tend to be really really nice little horses. Uh, in at least the ones that I've handled in my practice, you you don't tend to define ones that are, are really really difficult. They're uh, they tend to be really nice horses. So. 
so there's yet another horse added to the herd, <laughs> but uh, we're looking forward to it. So his name is Fargo. Great name. <laughs> Great name. Well, tell us what's going on with the AERC. Well, uh, we have a lot of, uh, of clinics that are, are coming up. We, um, we did a, a, a hot topic session on, uh, on clinics and educational program at the AERC convention, and we're starting to get a lot more clinics scheduled. Uh, we have two of them that are coming up uh, uh, the weekend of March 19th and 20th. Uh, one of them is uh, is in Parma, uh, Idaho, and that's being uh, put on by uh, a longtime endurance rider uh, and an author of um, of a book about endurance riding, Karen Bumgarner. Uh, and I'm going to be speaking in uh, Norman, Indiana, and that's a, a two-day clinic. Uh, the first day we're going to be doing a Beyond the Basics clinic. Uh, for uh, somebody that has maybe already done a ride or so and is, is interested in a little bit more of the uh, how to move up and uh, some of the more details. And uh, the second day, we're going to be doing a 101 for people that are just wanting to be introduced to the sport uh, and start ch- telling them what it's all about. And here's some of the basics that... Uh, uh, all of us that have been around and doing it for a while, uh, all of those things we wish we had, had known ne- uh, back then what we know now. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the little tips and tricks and things like that. Um, there's some other uh, uh, clinics that are coming up in uh, in Bend, Oregon, uh, one coming up in, in uh, uh, West Bend, Wisconsin, uh, another one coming up in, in Utah, uh, and we're... Um, Scheduling, it'll probably be May 21st, another one in, uh, in San Diego. So we're, we're adding lots more. Uh, you can go to the AERC uh, webpage, uh, aerc.org, and there's some links that you can follow to go to the clinic page, and that will have all of the, the information. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully people that are interested, come on out. The, the clinics are really, really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, was one just this past weekend in San Inez at Monty Roberts Farm, Flags Up Farms, uh, and uh, uh, they had a really nice turnout. And boy, it was just like a party. They were having a great time. Uh, it's so funny you said that. Really, really excited. It's so funny you said that because I just got a message on Facebook from Debbie Laux from Monty's daughter. So <laughs> she just messaged oh, yeah, me. Really. Well, she's probably just now recovering. Well, they do know how to have a good uh, time at the farm uh, at Flagstaff. <laughs> that is for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a cool place. So well, you know, well, that, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't hear any of the gossip out of the convention. I haven't heard anything. <laughs> Nobody. I, I don't know who. I, I don't know who lost all their money and couldn't get home. I don't well, know. Well, luckily, because all of the checks cleared, you're not going to hear any of the really good <laughs> stories. <laughs> <laughs> so well, apparently what happens in Reno stays in Reno. But, yeah, because uh, I haven't heard any of the gossip. <laughs> well, it, it was a, a great convention, actually. We, uh, uh, you know, I, I was so busy. I was, it was actually disappointed this, this year that uh, uh, I was, was so busy running from one committee to another that uh, uh, I, I actually didn't have a whole lot of, of time to, to actually go to the convention itself. I never even got into the, the vendor hall, which my husband was very, very happy about after the fact. <laughs> uh, normally, I, I tend to uh, uh, have a really, really good time in the, the, the vendor hall. Uh, and uh, uh, this time, I just, just didn't have a time to, uh, uh, to do that. But uh, we had a lot of great speakers. 
Um, and uh, we, uh, one of the, the things that, that did happen that was very interesting is we, we had several representatives uh, from uh, uh, upper levels of both FEI and uh, United States Equestrian Federation. And so they, they came and they, they were speaking to us about some of the ongoing problems in, in FEI in uh, certain regions that uh, still not mm-hmm. following the rules and, and still having some uh, some problems and how that's that's being uh, being approached. Uh, and I bet it, you that it was, was a well good attended. sign that they're, they're sending somebody at that level to talk to us and answer our questions. And uh, they spoke to the board of directors, and uh, it was um, it, it's it's not solving all of the problems yet, uh, but. I, I do think that they are making an honest effort to put the infrastructure in place to be able to solve uh, the uh, the problems that that we're still seeing. But it's it's real issue because it's it's difficult to uh, really crack down on rules specific to just one small pocket of of problems without it be really detrimental to uh, a lot of other regions that are uh, playing by the book and are doing things the uh, the right way but uh so we're uh, we're we're still paying a lot of close attention to to what's going on and we had a lot of questions for them and uh they they showed us a lot of uh of information different stats of things that are uh, are changing but there's clearly still a lot of work that still needs to be done you know mm-hmm. what, though, this is the step into getting that solved. You know, the fact that they are openly now talking about it, and they're t- not just talking about it with uh, with ours here, but every country. Uh, so, yes. and they have to. I mean, it's, it is an issue. It's not, you know, it's not something that's going to be solved overnight, and there it never is solved overnight when there's politics involved, and that's where we're at here. So, uh, well, it is, and there's, uh, I guess. Uh, Social media, it can be kind of a, a, a double-edged sword that in, uh, on one side, it's, it's a lot easier to get conversations going between different individuals, but there, there's some other things that, uh, you know, like you'll see a, a video of an injured horse um, and, and are thinking that this all happened at uh, an FEI endurance race when, in fact, it, it happened in that area and it was some sort of they uh, they also do desert uh, what they call desert racing, uh, which is a, a different sport and uh, it's it's not followed under the same same rules. They they have their own national rules which are entirely different. And if a horse is injured there, then people ascribe that as there was a catastrophic injury that happened during FEI yeah. endurance race. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's still, from happens, a horse's point of view, the horse it, doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, that happens across the board, too. You'll see a carriage horse down, and they'll say, oh, look what happened in New York City, and it was, you know, somewhere in India. Uh, you exactly. know, so, you know, yeah. just, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation as well. Uh, hey, yeah. I, have, I have a vet question, if oh, you there don't you mind. Go. Uh-oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I figured you'll be in the know, since you attended all of the... Um, the meetings and stuff at the convention. At the last ride I just did, two of the ride vets were scoring our horses' gut sounds with either a plus or a minus. Is that uh-huh. something new that is going to become a standard thing? Well, um, yes. What we're we're trying to do is gather more information about 
why some horses get sick at endurance rides and, uh, and, and why some don't. So what we're trying to do is we're encouraging uh, veterinarians to listen to all four quadrants of the, uh, the, uh, the gut. And if they are, are hearing what they feel are, are good, uh, good signs of, uh, of motility, then you put a plus. If you hear maybe more than you necessarily think you should be, which can also indicate a problem, then you put like a plus, plus, plus. Uh, if you're not hearing anything in that quadrant, then you're going to put a, a minus or, or something like that. So you okay. do try and um, uh, come up with an indication, not just in general, does the horse have gut sounds, but where those gut sounds are occurring, because that, that tells us uh, where the motility is, where it might be quiet. Uh, if it's quiet in some areas, then that is maybe more of an indication of a pending problem than in others. Um, okay. and, and actually, this, this kind of, uh, I should have brought this, this up, uh, we, we do have a really interesting research project that we're, uh, we're trying to get going. Uh, and this is the, uh, the principal investigator is Dr. Jerry Gillespie, uh, who is now retired, but was at uh, uh, Kansas State University and also at UC Davis. Uh, he is pretty much the Lord High God of equine exercise physiology and veterinary medicine in, in our world. He's, he's just, mm-hmm. uh, everybody just genuflects when, when Jerry walks by, but super nice man. And uh, he has come up with a really interesting study where we, we've had digital scales at endurance rides to measure how much weight and therefore how much fluid horse, uh, loss horses uh, mm-hmm. have during uh, dehydration during rides. But what we don't have is how much their fluid loss is starting basically at, at home base, at home because we don't know how much fluid those horses are actually losing during transport. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. We know what the averages are, but it can be a big difference between individuals. So what we're trying to find out is what the, uh, the absolute hydration losses are during the ride. So we have a grant. We're trying to get some, some funding for it. And uh, if the, uh, the, the funding goes through, then we're going to have a couple different groups of, of horses, one coming from the Los Angeles area, and we're going to gather all of those horses together, weigh them at the same time, and then load them all together onto a commercial uh, tra- uh, horse transport van, uh, and they're all going to travel together to an endurance ride up here in Northern California uh, at the Cooley Ranch Ride, and that's at the beginning of June. And then we will, again, measure the horses, uh, weigh the horses on a scale as soon as they come off the trailer, and then the next morning before they start, and then several times during the ride. And that's going to give us a much, much better idea of how much fluid these horses are losing during a ride. Mm -hmm. And then a second group is going to be coming from here in the Auburn area. So they're not traveling quite as far. But that also gives us an idea of the the comparative differences Uh between horses that are traveling, say, about nine hours away versus horses that are traveling maybe three or four uh, hours away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're we're going to be looking for uh, participants. We're we're still kind of uh, looking to get the uh, the grant funded, but we're we're hoping that we're going to be able to uh, to do that. And uh, we're we're hoping to get a group of about uh, maybe ten riders coming from each of those areas. We're we're going to uh, you know pick up their uh, the ride entry 
for the day and, and do some other things for them and uh, hoping that people will be interested in participating because this is going to be a really, really cool study. That sounds great. We're going to have to talk about this again after it's been okay. put together. Well, that would we're, be great. we're out of time and I just want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Say hi to Gina for me. Take care. You too. Bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, we're going to take a break. We have you got to catch up with the good folks at Renegade and at the convention. Let's take a listen to that conversation right now. And then we'll be back with our next guest. We are at the AERC convention, and I'm in the Renegade Hoof Boot booth with Ashley and Aurora. Hello. And we're going to talk to them a little bit about their boots. How's the show been going, Ashley? It's been a really good show this year. Uh, We've had a lot of interest in the boots, a lot of really good traffic. Uh, The convention is a great way for people to come and really get a hands-on look at the boots. And tell us about the boots. So one of the things that uh, we really like doing for convention is, again, that hands-on experience. Um, We can show people how they really function, uh, really demonstrate that unique uh, pivoting heel captivator ability, and just that chance to explain to people how the boots really work, show them how to adjust them, and, of course, get to display all of the lovely colors that are available. And tell us about the colors. So colors. On the Vipers, we have five colors. Those are black, red, copper, neon green, and neon orange. And in in the classics, we have black, orange, red, burgundy, yellow, copper, a darker green, and a chocolate brown. And I see you guys have some great displays with pictures of riders and renegades. Tell us a little about that. Yes, one of the things that I really like to do every year for convention is put uh, display banners together that show uh, some of the riders um, in endurance over the year that have had some really good ride accomplishments, put some good ride miles on, uh, and just really show the boots working and in their element. On some of the toughest rides in the country, right? Including the Tevis and Virginia City, some of the multi-day XP rides. Uh, This year, the AERC National Mileage winner, uh, Kathy Bartusek, was in Renegades. The National LD Mileage Champion, Janet Tipton, was in Renegades. And the Jim Jones Stallion Award winner, Crockett Dumas, rode in Renegades. Well, that's awesome. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Karen. Well, that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. I got to use the the voice recorder on my phone for the first time and it took us like three or four takes because every time we started the announcer would um, come across the PA system and announce something I've certainly done that before (laughs) you know it was kind of hard to keep a straight face and and talk because we were kind of uh, cracking up over that well our next guest is Gina Hall Gina and her horse Fire Mountain Destiny are the current recipients of the AARC Partners Award, and Gina's got over 15,000 miles herself, and Destiny has 7,300, and it looks like he's going into his 15th ride season, and I just want to um, explain a little bit about what the Partners Award is for the listeners that don't know. It is an award that that one of the big awards out of the three that the AERC gives out every year um, for the Hall of Fame, 
Uh, it's the rider and horse perform together as a mutually bonded team. Rider and horse engender a spirit of friendship, enthusiasm, and championship that makes those around them glad to have attended the ride. However competitive they may be, good sportsmanship remains their first priority. Horse and rider take care of each other. Together, horse and rider personify the prevailing and abiding goal of AERC. To finish is to win. Welcome to the show this morning, Gina. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Karen. How are you doing? Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in endurance and how old were you? Um, I was 16 when I first got introduced to endurance. Um, LaVon Booth uh, was my mentor, a lifelong friend, and she was introduced to it uh, through Cliff Lewis. And um, it was the perfect thing for a teenage girl to get to do. I've always been horse crazy, and I got the bug and never looked back. And what year was that? It was uh, 1978 was when I first got introduced. So you've been doing this a really long time. (laughs) I I have, yes. I I did take a break and have a daughter, and I did three-day eventing for a little bit. Uh, But when she showed interest in riding, uh, we got right back into endurance, and uh, it's just been wonderful. And tell us about Fire Mountain Destiny. How did you get him? Well, I got him. He was... um, just a little over two and a half, and a friend of mine, Wanda Myers, uh, had told me about him. I had a mare that was a talisman-bred mare, um, and Wanda owned talisman, and Mm -hmm. she told me of these horses that Jackie Bumgartner had that were also out of a talisman-bred mare, and we drove up to Bridgeport on a very cold November uh, day and took a look at these youngsters and um, to at first uh, glance he really was not anything that was impressive. He was in that gangly, awkward uh, two-year-old stage, big pot belly and a u neck, and I was just thinking, really, you know, you <laughs> that I want this horse. And uh, and she says, yeah, you're buying him for his bone and his bloodlines. And um, I decided to bring him home and. Um, he has just been an amazing animal, um, not without his challenges, but really an amazing animal. That's what I've heard. Now, has he ever bucked you off? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I have come off when, when I first, uh, tried to start him, he, he dumped me twice. And so I did send him to a trainer and, um, I was still afraid of him when I got him home. So my daughter, of course, wrote him <laughs> for me for a little bit. But what we discovered was um, putting a martingale on him was a very helpful tool because his signature move was to stick his nose up in the air, bolt and buck. And he can uh-huh. rodeo buck. And, uh, <laughs> but he hasn't bucked me off since then. What he, what he does is he spooks me off now. So, oh, okay. And, and I usually come off of him at least once a year, still. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) so what does he like to spook at? (laughs) Oh, uh, you know, he, I I almost think it's a game sometimes. He doesn't like the garbage bags flopping in the the sagebrush, obviously, none of them do. Um, But if he's feeling a little bit frisky, um, you know, a, a nice white boulder is a, a good thing to to jump sideways at and um 
he's just dirty quick with how he does it. And um, I've gotten a little bit better at staying on him, but sometimes when you have the momentum going and it's all she wrote, you know, I'm just off. <laughs> and, and what are his positive attributes? Let's talk about the good parts. <laughs> yes, we'll talk about the good things. He is extremely sound. Um, he, uh, after, you know, working through um, some issues with, uh, getting him over being ouchy, uh, he's just been an extremely sound horse. He's got a wonderful work ethic. He is a wonderful babysitter now, where I never thought he would be before. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just, he really is, uh, as far as the finishes to win, he's the perfect type of horse for that because he can get very wound up and want to go, but if you can get him in the right frame of mind, he can go all day long. And you like doing hundreds. How many hundreds have you done with him? I have finished, I've started and finished 21 100-mile rides with him. Wow. And yeah. ten, of, 10 of those were Virginia City, weren't they? Actually, 11. 11? Um, wow. He finished his 11th Virginia City last year, um, which tied him with uh, Weta Zaris that Donna Fitzgerald um, had, uh-huh. and um, uh, it was it was quite amazing because I, I wasn't quite sure if we were going to be able to do hundreds anymore, um, and um, he pulled it off, he, and he had a great day. We had a wonderful ride. Great. And Glenn, I know you you haven't seen the trail probably at Virginia City, but it's basically all rocks. <laughs> <laughs> A hundred miles of rocks. Yeah, there's a lot of rocks. <laughs> there's a lot of rocks, and 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 a lot of rocks have horses' names on them. And so, fortunately, Destiny probably doesn't have any rocks with his name on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've done it enough times that we try to negotiate around those rocks. So yes, yes, <laughs> go around them all. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, what are your plans for the future with with uh, Destiny? Um. You know, we're just going to start out the season again. I'm hoping to do rides in March with him, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. And um, just kind of play it by ear. I would, you know, I never thought that I'd get over 7,000 miles with him. Um, you know, it, to get 8,000 would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're just going to, you know, take one ride as as it comes. And And if I could pull off another Virginia City this year, that would be great, but, um, you know, we'll just see how he progresses throughout the year and whether it's going to be too hard on him or not because, you know, with this many miles and he'll be 19 this month, uh-huh. he's, he's starting to show a little bit of wear. So we'll just um, play it by ear. Great. Well, congratulations to you on uh, receiving this award. Thank you, Karen. And, and for all of your... Uh, successful rides with him. That's just terrific. Thank you. you. Okay. Uh, Glenn, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry. Okay, good. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. I know. I know. Yes, I do that. I know. Wake up, Glenn. Wake up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. You know, it's a lot of these horses that that do so well in the sport for long term are often difficult. You know, the riders have to work through things with them and and then they become a real team together. And I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, 
that shows that Gina and Destiny deserve to receive that award. So I'm real happy for them. That's great. Well, very good. Well, this is uh, we we. Uh, are coming up into ride season all across course here in Florida. They've been doing rides, uh, you know, last couple months. But uh, where can people find out if there are rides in their area and if they want to, if they're brand new and decided that this is the year for endurance riding? I've been trying to talk Jennifer into doing the endurance riding. Uh, so, but she need a new horse because her horse really doesn't want to do endurance riding. So, she uh-huh. he, he can looking. do endurance. At, at, he, he's doing walk endurance. He can yes. walk across the country. Yes. Now, <laughs> does one mile at the walk count as endurance, Karen, or is that a little short? <laughs> I, it might be a little short. A little short. Okay. So, yes. but See, you know, you got to start somewhere. You got to start. <laughs> you know, you could, you know, start doing an intro ride. They have intro rides at a lot of the rides now. Well, which remind, are, it's been a long time since we talked about this, and we have a lot of new listeners. Remind everybody what the minimum, what the like shortest rides are that then you work your way up. Well, some of the rides you can start with the introduction rides, introductory rides, and it depends on the ride. You know, they'll probably send you out on one of the shorter loops. So it might even be just eight miles or 10 miles or sometimes it their 15 mile loops and then uh that's just basically to get an introduction to the sport and learn a little bit about you know how to follow the trail how to vet you know how the rides work and and that sort of thing then you've got the limited distance rides which are typically between 25 and 30 and 35 miles and then the endurance rides which are 50 miles and up we've got multi-day pioneer rides which are 50 miles a day over the course of um, anywhere from three to five days and then you've got the um, the the top level which is the one day 100 mile rides so you really can start with something that's you know 10 to 20 miles as a beginner and and see see where you you fit into the whole scheme of things. Right, unless you're like our first guest who when he started there yeah, was just Tevis. The Tevis. Yeah. <laughs> you just start out with Tevis. Miles, let's just go ride. I'm 12, you're, why not? <laughs> yes, and then you have to start another ride, you know, the Virginia that City just 100 just to, to have another ride. That just goes to show you too how how parents were different back then, right? Uh, you know, because today can you imagine a mom who, who, you know taking their their son out and saying, "Oh, it's your first ride. Just go to Tevis here, have fun." It's just <laughs> We'll, well see when you get the, back if you do. These uh, guys back then, they would go out and, and like he was saying, he he met Nick Mansfield, who who was well over thirty miles from his ranch, out on a training ride. You know, nowadays people spend months training to do what those guys considered did, yeah, a training just, ride. A training ride. That's got to ride fifty miles in a day. <laughs> yes, yeah. or or thirty or forty or whatever. But you know, these guys were out there riding. You know, twenty five, thirty or more miles a day, several days a week, and they didn't think anything of it. You know, because they were training. You know, to to do the endurance the, ride at the, the one time. Thing which that was endurance Travis. that as endurance has going against it is the time it does take. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're, you know, every discipline takes time, but endurance takes extra time. And I mean, just physical time out of your week. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that is, that is a, you know, kind of a negative that endurance has going against it compared to some of the other disciplines. You know what though, if people would turn Facebook and social media off, they would have a lot of time to go ride. (laughs) (laughs) Karen has spoken. 
And how many of them are doing social media while they're riding? By the way, uh, probably so, yeah. you know, but I think back to when I was first starting doing this, you know, over 20 years ago, we didn't have any of that. We didn't even I don't even think I had a cell phone yet, you know, so right. it, it just seems like we allow technology and too many of these other things to infringe upon our time and, and what, y- y- you know, we have to make time to do it. I, I remember one of my neighbors years ago asking me, how do you find the time to ride all the time? And it's like, I don't find it. I have to make it. You you know, it has to be something that, you know, you're dedicated to. And you just have to, you know, look at the calendar, look at the, you know, your schedule, and you've got to just force it in there somehow, some way, and, and do it. Because it's, you know, it's never been easy for anybody. We've, I mean, everybody, you know, even going back, um, to, you know, these old timers, they had work, they had school, they had um, chores, they had all the things that they had to do in their daily lives, just like we do now. But, you know, that's what they wanted to go do. And, you know, you just, it's just a matter of prioritizing, you know, what you want and and then doing it. Make it happen. I think you're right there, Karen. It's not making time. It's simply prioritizing. uh Turn off, turn off Facebook. (laughs) Or whatever it is, you just you figure out what 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 you're doing in a given day, and reprioritize it. Do you really want to vacuum the house? Uh, I knew she was going to say that. I just laundry, knew it. Or would you rather go ride? <laughs> And then go wrong. I knew it. <laughs> yes, we've got to prioritize that <laughs> housework. <laughs> <That's right>. And <laughs> like cleaning the car. Down to the and bottom uh, of the list. <laughs> yeah. Laundry and <laughs> Yeah. Right, exactly. Which is why you marry husbands. That's why that's why we, we belong to the category of horse husband. <laughs> we we have to prioritize those things a little bit higher. Well, exactly. thank you, Karen. Well said, actually. Well very well said. <laughs> and as goes that's true of uh, any any horse sport, isn't it? Right. Just and to learn more about the rides or um, the upcoming clinics that, that Susan was talking about, you can go to aerc.org. And also, now you have your blog. Give that out. Yes, karenchatton.com. Very good, karenchatton.com. If you want to hear past episodes that Karen has done, just go to uh, horsesinthemorning.com and search for endurance. It'll bring up all the past episodes. And also, uh, keep in mind that you can listen to the recorded version of the Horses in the Morning show on the iOS or Android app in your app store. Just search for Horse Radio Network. It's free and it's easy to use. Jamie, you'll be back here tomorrow morning, and we look forward to seeing you then at 9 a.m. Eastern. Eastern. And Karen, this is for you. (laughs) 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 Bye, Glenn.